Welcome to another edition of Truth and Rhythm, brought to you by FunkinStuff.net. This is the interview show that gets deep in the pocket with contemporary music's foremost masters of the groove. I am your host, Scott Dr. GX Wolfine, musicologist, creative arts journalist, and multimedia pro. Whether you're watching the video version of this show or the audio-only podcast version, I thank you so much for your continued interest and support in this show. If you enjoy this programming, there are several ways to help support Truth and Rhythm, as well as contribute to further enhancements and expansion, plus get some sweet perks and rewards in the process. First, subscribe to the Funkin' Stuff channel on YouTube, which is where Truth and Rhythm lives, and be an advocate by spreading the word among fellow funk, jazz, and R&B music lovers. Second, join Truth and Rhythm's new membership program through Patreon, which features three tiers for truth believers, truth seekers, and truth crusaders. You can also submit a direct donation to the cause anytime at funkinstuff.net. At that site, which is loaded with awesome content, you can also purchase the book, Everything's on the One, The First Guide of Funk. Shop for official Truth and Rhythm and Funk and Stuff merchandise and use the Amazon links for all of your online purchases, which allocates a percentage to this show. Sponsorship opportunities are available as well. Contact me directly at scottg at funkinstuff.net. For those of you who go the extra step in supporting the show, you have my heartfelt gratitude for allowing us to continue to shine the light on those special artists whose quest is to find truth in rhythm. I am pleased to welcome to the Truth in Rhythm Mothership percussionist Oliver C. Brown an original member of KC and the Sunshine Band who went on to record and perform with a long list of soul, rock, pop, and jazz artists. Those include Lattimore, George McRae, Nancy Wilson, the Supremes, Billy Preston, Jermaine Jackson, the Whispers, Betty Wright, Thelma Houston, Takaboom, Leo Sayer, Natalie Cole, Eloise Law, Sarita, the Beach Boys, Cher McFleetwood, and smooth jazz groups, Gravity 180 and Nils. Oliver, thank you for joining me. How are you? Oh, wonderful. Uh, life has been a very blessed experience to this point. You know, what can I say? God's good. <laughs> no no doubt, no doubt. And where are you coming to us from today, Oliver? Well, I'm in Hollywood. In fact, I'm um, right across from the Hollywood Bowl. It's um, just down the street from where I stay. Oh, nice area. Yeah, I'm from there originally and, uh, you know, uh, moved away about 15 years ago. But uh, where are you from originally? Uh, originally, I'm from Berkeley, California. Uh, and Berkeley was a wonderful town to um, grow up in because it was very diverse because of the university there. And um, it was kind of um, a bedrock of um, folk music and R&B and rock and, and just about everything. So it was a great place to grow up. 
<clears throat> yeah, I imagine, especially in the uh, 60s, late 60s and all that. I mean, that was incredible hotbed and melting pot of culture and music. Absolutely. In fact, my brother, um, my older brother, Eddie, uh, was in a duet called Joe and Eddie. Uh, that's how I actually got the uh, inspiration, so I say, to want to someday be in the music business. Uh, Joe and Eddie used to rehearse at the house all the time. You know, and they were um, on their way to be one of the greatest folk acts of all time when uh, Joe, unfortunately, uh, died at uh, 24 automobile accidents. <clears throat> and what drew you to percussion, Oliver? Ah, uh, yes. Well, I started listening to the fabulous Mongo Santa Maria and Cal Jaded, as I said. And in Berkeley, all the music was always available. And uh, I just got completely mesmerized with his uh, style of play, his, his uh, powerful rhythms. And, uh, and so I kind of emulated my beginnings from where he was coming from. And Armando Peraza, who was a fantastic um, conga player and bongo player, too. <clears throat> and did you find it was easy to get your hands on some percussion instruments, or how did that develop? Uh, <laughs> well, actually, you know, Joe and Eddie, like I said, used to practice uh, at the, down in our basement uh, in Berkeley. And uh, Eddie could play bongos and a few instruments uh, quite well, too. And so there would be stuff laying around in the room, and I would sneak down there when they weren't there just kind of try to go at it you know <clears throat> and so did they did, did they encourage you or were you like hey get away you're kind of a pest uh, yeah right well a little of each you know because i can be a little overbearing <laughs> as ed would uh, attest to and, <clears throat> and get in the way of what they were seriously trying to accomplish there you know they had some really great musicians playing with them too like lewis shelton who um later uh, became the uh, producer of uh, Seals and Cross, you know. <clears throat> and, and how did you uh, get involved with TK Records? You know, it's on the other side of the country and all that. So what happened? Oh, this was interesting. I was in a group, my first group, uh, called the Pasadena Ghetto Orchestra. Now, we called it that because uh, I, I suggested the name because we were in Pasadena. And of course, back in those days, there was really no ghetto there, you know, but we were some black kids that were there hanging out, practicing and forming this band. I said, I think our music is too sophisticated to call it band, folks, so let's just call it the, the orchestra, you know, and up came that name. Well, we were in Europe and uh, the group turned down a record deal with uh, the company that had um, uh, the pop tops on it. They had that song out called Mammy Blue or something with number one on the charts out there. And uh, when they turned on the record deal, I felt like it was shortstopping my career. So I moved to the Bahamas. That set me up to come across to uh, TK Records because um, after I was in the Bahamas for a while and saw that was kind of a small situation too in terms of the ambitions that I had to really break into the business uh, in the mainstream, so I said, let's go. I want to go over to Miami and just take a look and see what the music scene is. And I was amazingly blessed um, to um, run into a, um, a drummer named uh, Freddie Scott, I believe his name was. And Freddie was playing for everybody at TK. Uh, Betty Wright and some of the other major acts there, Benny Lattimore and others, and he was recording. And uh, he heard me play and he said, um, well, uh, I'd like to introduce you to Steve Lambert. 
And I said, great. So he went and told Steve about me. Steve invited me over to TK Records. Uh, and Steve said, uh, uh, I, I, I want you to play on this track. And he just put up a track and I instantly started showing him some of the skill I had at that point in my career. And Steve said, okay, I'll tell you what, kid. You, every morning you wake up, you call me. And I would call up Steve. And Steve would tell me, okay, I have one, I have two, I have three, you know, uh, come on down. And I would come down there and he'd have two or three songs for me to play on. And back in them days, you know, we were paying something like $35 a cut. But $35 was, since your rent was only about 105 or something a month, it was actually really good money in those days. So I'd come in there and play with Steve just about every uh, day of the week, at least every other day of the week. And, uh, and he was like the vice president of TK Records and, and um, the executive producer for every project that would come out of the company. And Oliver, this was about this, Oliver. This was about 1974, or whereabouts? Right, that's about the way exactly. Right, it was 74, and um, and so um, I would be playing almost with everybody at the company. I was working with Lattimore. I was working with Little Beaver and Clarence Reed and all those acts they had. Demi Tomlinson, so on. And um, Steve came to me one day and he said, "Look, I want you to do me a favor." I want you to go and play with these kids at night. Now, Casey and the Sunshine Band had made a record that was, well, hadn't done very well in the States, but it was very fortunate that it caught on in England. It was a tune on there called Queen of Clubs. And uh, Steve said, um, uh, so uh, I want you to go up and work with these kids. Now, after the record didn't do so well in the States, they were kind of relegated to after hours, so to speak, you know, that they know this was going to be the group that was going to make the record to launch the label at night. So we were up there at night, you know, uh, working on this um, project that was going to turn out to be the project, but we didn't know it at the time. And uh, Steve came to us and said, look, uh, yeah, I want you guys to go over to England and promote that, that record we have out over there. So we went to England and, um, the promoters were working us to death. I mean, we literally were doing two and three shows and sometimes in three different locations in the same day, you know. And uh, we had worked extremely hard over about a month. And uh, we came and on our way back home. This is where the career really became a career. You know, at this point, we come at home and we get into the airport in Miami. And there's people everywhere. And we're looking around and there's cameras and people running around with cameras and stuff. And we're walking in. I look at Steve and I said, Steve, what's going on right here? Somebody important must be at the airport. Yeah. And Steve said, no, that's for you guys. You have the number one record. And I didn't want to tell you why you were there in England. I wanted it to be a surprise. So here we are. Uh, you have the number one record in the country. Get down tonight. Henry Stone released that stuff you guys are working on before you left. And uh, it is now blown up into what it became. Uh, next thing we know, there was hit after hit after hit after the record, you know. <clears throat> and uh, I go ahead. Interject, Oliver. Um, so when you were laying down those cuts around that first record, like Get Down Tonight and That's the Way and Boogie Shoes and those kinds of things, right. um, what, what was the feeling like and vibe like in the studio? 
Oh, it was absolutely wonderful because Rick Finch, the bass player. Now, Rick was also the technician for the company. He literally kept that eight-track board working. He was a little genius. I mean, this kid was wonderful to work with. And he would just let you get up there and just kind of express yourself. We could just, I mean, like I say, we had all that time after I was up there and we could just take our time. And it was one of the most relaxed uh, situations to work in in the studio because you felt absolutely no pressure. You know, you don't have to get out because the next act is coming or whatever it may be. So I'm up there with Rick and we're just trying out every kind of thing we want to try out. <clears throat> and I'm, um, you know, for instance, like, um, that's the way I like it. You know, that's the way I like it. When I recorded that, it was like, if you listen to the song, okay, the way you're supposed to play percussion, so I said the traditional thing to do in the studio. You come in and you try to create a rhythm that is something that accents what's going on on the bass and locks with the drums, okay? And so it's generally one of those kinds of rhythms that just lays down in there. Well, what I did on that was I was listening to that's the way, uh-huh, uh-huh, I like it. And I literally am playing that rhythm, that, that little tune-like, in rhythm on the track. So and, and when other percussionists play after I left the band, they never could quite figure out what that is because the natural rhythm would sound some, something like, but I was playing, and, you know, and inside the groove, you know. <clears throat> so it changed the whole, so I say, um, um, directions of, the, of that particular song. And those kind of things were allowed because of the way Rick would uh, produce up there and, and, and handle the sound for us, you know, and just allow us just to express ourselves in any way, try things we wouldn't dare try on a regular date because somebody might look at you and say, wait a minute, man, <laughs> get back in another group. <laughs> you know, wow. so so, I had a great time making the record. And what were those uh, musicians like? I mean, what was the, was there a lot of camaraderie among the guys or just kind of oh. hi hired players or? Uh, oh, no, no, no. This was, see, the, actually the Sunshine Band was a, a group called the Ocean Liners. Uh, and Jerome, the guitar player, and Robert, the drummer, okay, like myself, would go to TK and record with just about anything that was up there. Okay, and Jerome in particular, he was the premier rhythm guitar player for everything. He was just fabulous, you know, this boy he played. And so anyway, <clears throat> they were in a band called the Ocean Lines, which is where the horns came from. The horns, uh, Ronnie Smith and Jerome Smith were literal brothers out of the same room, okay? And they, they had formed this band. Well, Casey used to go over to the club out on the beach where everybody played. I forget the name of it. It was uh, Castaways or something like that, I think it was called. Right. Uh, and it was very popular in mine. And all the acts around the town played there. It was like a premier place to kind of play. And all the uh, tourists and everybody showed up there. And so they had a regular gig there. And every now and then, Casey would come in and want to sing with the band. you know. And, of course, Casey had the connection to TK Records because of his relationship with Henry Stone, the president. So that was their way to get in to the studio. You know, he was like the catalyst for that. So what happened over time was the Ocean Liners became the Sunshine Band, um, uh, adding myself 
Casey and Rick to what was already a nucleus. So this was a really tight band because they had played together as kids coming up, you know, and had had this other thing going before we ever got into the studio with the other stuff. So, and that's where all the great movements with the horns and all that stuff was born. It was born down there at Castaways where they would work out all that kind of stuff, you know. And, and so it was like playing with your brothers, you know, literally. You know, we've all just hang out afterwards and during those kind of sessions. Because I'd go down and jam with them too at Castaways and when I wasn't, you know, recording or something else. <clears throat> did, did you feel like um, Get Down Tonight when it was cut that it had a shot at being a hit? No, <laughs> I'll be honest. Right. I mean, we were doing it and, uh, you know, it was like, I just thought it was a cute song. Really, I think it's got a nice little catchy thing to it. And, um, you know, but it was Rick, once again, you know what I mean, that did a thing to that song. I think I actually have to get, give him the credit for getting people to pay attention because any song you put out on the air, it's like uh, a story in a book. It's got to have a beginning, a middle, and an end. And it has to have a beginning that will make you lean in and want to read more. It's got to be a middle in there that kind of keeps your attention, captivates you, and then it's got to end on something that is memorable, okay? And Rick understood this. So what Rick did was he said, okay, we're going to open this song. If you hear that thing up there that goes, boom, get down, get down, you know what I'm saying? That's Rick taking the guitar rhythm of Jerome, slicing it, the tape, reversing it, running it back through the machine and creating that sound. That's the guitar played backwards. That's it's such a unique does. guitar sound on that record. Exactly. And it came up with a very hip and unique sound. And when people heard it on the radio, it made you say, oh, what's that? And once you got in, then Robert Johnson, you know, and have that, he, I, I call him the, he invented the disco beat. That was his beat. I mean, Robert, that's what he played. I, I have to say it. I mean, not to take away from what Robert does, but that was his beat. I mean, he almost played it on everything or some rendition of it, you know, and that's, and it was just so tight, you know, like I say, from all those years of hanging out together as kids and doing this thing. And so once you got locked in that groove, you know, you couldn't get out of that song. And next thing I know, there was. Boom. But when it was being done, I kind of thought it was just a cute song. I had no idea it was going to do that. You know. <clears throat> yeah, that song was, you know, that that was categorized by some people as disco, but it was funkier than most disco. Absolutely. In fact, disco never did Casey and the Sunshine Band justice. It's an R&B act. I mean, it really is. I mean, you know, because like I said, the Ocean Lines were done on the beach playing stuff like um, James Brown. Uh, you know, uh, uh, Commodores, and uh, you name it. I mean, you know, th they were an R&B band. And this was their version of R&B put into disco, you know. So it was a, it was definitely an R&B band. You know, people called it disco, but I always thought of it as R&B. You know? <clears throat> were the lyrics for That's the Way kind of made up on the spot, or were those actually written oh, out? Yeah, right. Now those, <laughs> right. That's, and that was another thing. I thought the lyrics were just too simple. But it's like Sly Stone said, you know, play a simple song. And it's something about simplicity that the public will 
bite on easier than the more complex stuff. But yeah, the lyrics were always to me a little questionable. It was like, really? You know, uh-huh, uh-huh, I like it. I mean, uh, really? Are we going to say that? You know, and <laughs> next thing I know, <laughs> every one of these songs were catching on. But, you know, Casey was, uh, you know, clever about that kind of thing. He could come up with a interesting kind of uh, cadence for those uh, very simplified lyrics. And, hey, the world went for it. <laughs> Lock, stock, and barrel, you know. <laughs> what, what, what was Casey like? Um, I mean, was he an unlikely pop star or did you think he was going to probably become a star? Uh, well, uh, what Casey had and what I, and what I say to all people that, that want to get, get into the business is he had total belief. And you have to be kind of dogmatic about your, you know, pursuit in this business I mean, because I've met people with tremendous talent, okay, that don't become huge stars because they kind of lay back. Uh, they kind of have an attitude of I'm privileged, I'm special. I really don't have to work that hard because, I'm, you know, it's obvious that I, that I can sing or play or something better than most people. Those people don't become stars. The stars are the people that are totally dedicated that will, you know, walk through, uh, uh, you know, broken glass to get to the finish line. And Casey absolutely had that in spades. That's what he had mostly. And he would work harder than anybody. You know, people said, you know, well, he can't really sing, you know, but he kept on trying and kept on trying until he finally developed a thing that, uh, no, he's not Luther Vandross, you know what I'm saying? But people rising on one of these people, but he had a sound. And that's another thing that uh, I, through my years and my experience, I have noticed. You know, the key to success, too, is you have to have something that good is not good enough. It has to be good and different. And Casey, to his credit, you can't find nobody that sings that way. You know, you, no one sounds like this guy. You see what I mean? And so he had that, too. He had a unique sound. He had an approach that was very simplistic, you know. And then he had that jamming, driving, <laughs> rhythmic band, you know. And, and you put those things together and that determination that he has and that presto, he becomes what he is today, you know. <clears throat> now, Oliver, when you were on some of those other TK records, were you on any, like Rock Me Baby, like the McRae? songs or what which oh, records yeah. were you think, on? Well, Casey and Rick were producing all of uh, um, McRae's uh, uh, music too. Uh, George McRae and Gwen McRae uh, were another product of, of Rick Finch and Casey, you know, basically. You know, their biggest hits came from songs that, uh, and that's another thing, you know, woman, take me in your arms and rock me, baby, okay? Well, that high note, you know, that Casey could sing like that. Okay, and so he said, I'm gonna get George to sing this part. And he knew George had one of those kind of voices that could just sell, you know. And to his credit, he knew who to get to do what and, and put it on a record, you know. So um, uh, that's how that happened. So I played on a lot of their stuff because I was playing on anything that Casey and Rick were doing pretty much at that time. And, and like I say, um, and anything that, uh, Clarence Reed would do, or Little Diva, or Lattimore. Or the, whenever 
Steve would bring me in the studio to, you know, augment whatever people were doing at TK. <clears throat> and how, how'd you feel when you first heard songs on the radio that you were part of? Oh, my goodness. I used to go hang out at the radio station. I felt so good uh, finally to have anything that was being played. And, and I forget the name of the station. It was small stations, but uh, there were some stations in the general Miami area that uh, the company was well connected to. And I got to know some of the, the DJs there. And I had like a kind of a free pass to just go knock on the door and the DJ would say, guess who's here? You know, and it was cool. That was a great relationship. I loved riding down the streets and hearing the music in the car. It was like, my goodness, look, at this, look what's happening here, you know. And about, how, about how old were you when you first heard something on the radio? I was 20. Let's see. When I came there, I think I was 24. Yeah. So I was either 24. Uh, I think I was 24 when I heard the first anything of consequence on the uh, radio. Because I also played on this thing that when I first came there, Steve Alamo was uh, producing um, uh, Clarence Reed. Uh, he had this blowfly thing going. And he had this song out called When Daddy Rode the West or something. I was playing on that. That was the first thing I played at TK. I remember it because it was the first thing he had me cutting that actually got released and ended up on the radio. Yeah. yeah he was kind of a, a rap progenitor, right? Uh, yeah. Yeah. He was. <laughs> So, uh, <clears throat> but that was great too. Those are great, great times. And, and there's nothing like hearing yourself on the radio, especially for the first time. Yeah. Now, I know you didn't stick around long with Casey. There were some issues, but you did do some performances with them on some of the hits, right? Oh, yes. We uh, went and we did um, a whole list of tours running through the South and then a bunch of stuff that went into St. Louis and and uh, in some of those places. In fact, that's where I met my uh, wife, uh, who I'm married to today, uh, Teresa. Uh, she's from St. Louis, you know, and she came to one of the, the final concerts that I played with the band. Um, because, you know, we had started to uh, debate the, the, the split of what it was going to be and who was actually going to be the band. And in the beginning, we said in for pennies, in for a pound, and everybody's the band. But uh, slowly but surely, it became a situation where Casey and Rick wanted to make the band myself, Jerome, Robert, and uh, Casey and Rick. Uh, I didn't think that was just or fair. So at that point, uh, and plus my face is on the cover of Cashbox magazine. <laughs> you know, at that point, we had done enough shows and had enough action that there I was sitting on the cover of Cashbox magazine. So I said, okay, I'm going to go to L.A. You know, I, I can't be a, a part of what, what this is going to be. You know, uh, it's just not right. So anyway, <clears throat> I came to uh, California and uh, hooked up with uh, Brian and Eddie Holland, two great uh, writers um, and uh, producers from Motown. Legend. They were on the show not too long ago. Mm -hmm. Oh, right on. Well, hey, hey, fellas. <laughs> they were instrumental. In fact, they were the key to the door so to speak, you know, to Hollywood, because I came to town and um, they Invictus, had, Invictus Records. Yeah, Darnell Graves was his name. He was working for Brian Eddie Hall, and he's passed on too. And he introduced me to Brian and Eddie, who introduced me to James Gatson, the legendary drummer who's played on everything. Uh, he was in a band called 
I think he started with the Watts on 103rd Street, the rhythm band. You know, they had a song called Love Land or something like that. And James is fantastic, you know, wonderful man. But James kind of endorsed me, you know. Uh, and, uh, and then I went up to um, the NR department at Motown. And the girl said, well, who are you? And my <laughs> magazine was still sitting on the desk there. <laughs> and I said, well, uh, this is the band I, I, I've been playing with. And she looked down there and she said, oh, my goodness. So she called up, you know, the NR director and said, guess who's out here? And one thing leads to the next. I find myself hooked up to Ben Barrett, the biggest contract in Hollywood. And the rest is pretty much history. I um, started recording for acts at uh, Rista, Capitol, Motel, you name it, you know. <clears throat> and, uh, so anyway, uh, and then I... Well, let me, let me just hold you one second before we move on to some of those acts. I, I did want to ask you about that tour with KC. Um, you must, did you do some big venues and, you know, how, how did you appreciate being out there performing as opposed to the studio? Oh, my, well, performance is my thing. Actually, the studio, uh, I've always been reluctant about the studio because there you are, nothing really to drive you except the earphones and the music that's coming into your head. When I play uh, live, I mean, I got in the business for that because it's just that yin-yang you're getting from the audience, you know. And when you're hearing that hush sound that happens when it's like 10,000 people out there, you know, like, I mean, that is just a rush. And it still is to this day. In fact, I'm in the business still at this point because I want to play live. And I used to say to people, I'll cut your record, but you got to take me out, you know. If I could go out with you, then I'll work on the record, you know. And other people was the other way around. And Neil's my partner, which we'll talk about him, you know, amazing guitar that I've been working with for the last few years here in Hollywood. Uh, <clears throat> he was just the opposite. He was always telling people that, um, you know, I want to um, um, get in the studio, <laughs> you know, and I'll play live <laughs> to yeah, get in the studio, you know. Right. <clears throat> Uh, uh, so, so live is my thing. I played at the Keel Auditorium, you know, uh, um, back to when I met my wife, um, Teresa, and the place was just packed out, you know. On that, tour, on that tour, you guys were so hot, though. I'm guessing that there's probably some shows where you were maybe supposed to be the opener. You actually, you know, got oh, more attention yes, than, the, than the headliner. Yeah, exactly. Uh, this was, I mean, I remember this, too. I actually predicted Michael Jackson before he became Michael Jackson. I know there was a, you know, the Jackson Five were an amazing act out of Motown that, uh, you know, no matter what, you had to give them the props, especially in the early days. I mean, you know, ABC on through the whole thing, okay? And um, we here we are with the number one record in the country, and we're going to open for the Jackson Five. You know, now, you know, I'm, young and cocky, you know, so I'm thinking, <laughs> Jackson, five, wait a minute, I mean, I love them, they're real good, and this and the other, but we got the number one record, why are we opening for anybody, you know, and so we opened, and the people rocked, and the stadium, I mean, the place was great, and everybody was, you know, cheering and standing and so on, and we leave the stage, 
And then the Jackson 5 come up. And I'm standing in the wings to wonder why I'm opening for anybody. And Michael comes out there and whirls around the cord. And then I'm calling his mics then. The cord wraps around this guy, man. He just does that little jerk and he just drops into a little stack at his feet, you know. And he slides across the stage. And Chris, you think that was a mistake and does it again in perfect rhythm and just tang the house up. And I look at this and I say, my God, it's a good thing we dare not try to come on after this. <laughs> That's true. It's I, so, I think that was around the dancing machine era. Exactly, exactly. He was awesome. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. He had all that stuff, you know. And so then I come to San Francisco and we're doing the Circle Star V8. And um, the place is packed out as always. And I'm running around the stage and having a ball, you know, and I come out of my shirt is one of my things. I started it up because the clothes start sticking to you after the water's all over you. So to get freed up to do stuff, I started just taking it off at some point, you know. Well, it became a thing. So people know me for snatching off my shirt on stage, you know. And so I, uh, Casey's got me up there playing both sides of the circle as it's going, and the band is rocking, and we're tearing the place up. They got the police barrier set up so we can get off the stage at the end of the last platoon. And I'm coming off the stage last, you know, because I'm set up so that the band can trail out, you know. And so I'm coming off the stage playing this tambourine and get down there, and there's this surge. And the police barrier kind of breaks down. I get mobbed for a moment. And they have to pull them off. You know. Now, my two kids <clears throat> were sitting right down front. And they see this thing go on. You know. says, Dad, they get back to the backstage and says, Dad, you guys are going to be the biggest thing in the world. And that's when I said, hey, son, let me tell you something. I saw a kid out here last week, Michael Jackson. And I told him right then, I said, look, if he was white, they'd make him God. Hmm. <laughs> That's what I said. Okay. <laughs> uh, a couple of months later, you know, about eight months or six months or whatever it was later, he comes moonwalking across that stage and everybody knows what happened after that at the Motown Review. And it just blows up. And I look at my kids and uh, later on, I say, I told you so. This kid is the baddest thing I ever seen in show business. And he became it. You know, I mean, even Barry Gordy once confessed that he didn't see it getting that big. Yeah. Like, well, who no, could have ever seen that. that except for maybe you, but, uh, yeah. you know, um, that, that comment though, about, um, the race part of it, you know, it's ironic in light of KC too, because he didn't have anywhere near the talent of like a Michael Jackson, obviously. And he got so big. And I know on that first record and get down tonight came out. I kind of assumed it was probably an all black band and, and I think it was intentional that the cover did not show KC. Oh yes, it, it absolutely was. I yeah. mean, in fact, they told us so. In fact, I have a picture in London, you know, coming out onto to the stage. Casey and I used to come out and I would go out first playing a tambourine, you know, and dance up behind the drums. He would come right behind me. We'd be up there together, dancing out onto the stage and the band would come up. So people weren't sure who Casey was. You know what I'm saying? It was like, it could be that guy. Might be this guy. You know what I'm saying? And also, <clears throat> we had to do that, though, because the industry is so warped and so unjust in everything that, that it does based on race. You know, 
it was kind of like the R&B stations had an attitude about playing white people because the pop stations had an attitude about playing black people. You know what I'm saying? And so it was like, okay, so if we want to break in and we had to break in R&B, because like I said, the truth of the matter is it was called disco, but it was R&B band. And KC sounded black because he hung out with black people all the time. I mean, literally, you know, uh, the band... Uh, when they were kids, uh, Casey was telling me, used to actually have sleepovers at each other's houses. And this is in the South, you know, so I'm saying, no, he was influenced by that experience, you know, and he had a lot of soul in that respect. And so when he put it on the record, it sounded like a guy that you, you wasn't sure what it was, you know. Yeah. And, and a lot of people thought, I was Casey sometimes, you know what I mean? <laughs> I just laugh at him. And him and them told us straight out. You know, we had the p- picture of the band on the, uh, this is a collector's item now. The back, right? The picture of the band was on the back of the album, but only in England because they already knew about us, okay? When it came to the States, him and them deliberately took all that off of it. And all you see is that little thing with the Casey and the Sunshine Band and that's it. Uh, because otherwise, some DJs would actually get an attitude and say, "I ain't playing this guy white." <laughs> yeah, <know>? yeah. <laughs> it's it's ironic because Black Gravy really broke KC and kind of you, they didn't want him to see that he was a white artist. But right. then it ended up helping him mm-hmm. become very big through the rest of the seventies. So it's just interesting Absolutely. how that played out. Right. Well, slowly but surely, you see, the world is 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 waking itself up. I mean, you know, I'm. Uh, I've been around here now long enough to realize, in fact, I'm writing a book, okay? And the book is called uh, No Apology for for the Truth. You know, the book of Oliver, uh, No Apologies for the Truth, you know? And one of the things I say in it, you know, to be a, so I say, um, a quality human being, you have to shed your racial identity. You know, it's a quote because I know we make a lot and a lot of pride out of uh, my blackness or my whiteness or my Asianness or all these cultures. But the fact of the matter is the most important thing we are is humans. Hmm. And if we would just put that on front street and get away from this thing that we have done for thousands of years, this whole world would be like John Lennon said, a brotherhood of mankind, you know, so uh, we need to work on that. And, you know, those things need to go away. In fact, uh, I'm um, uh, working, like, like I say, I've always worked with everybody. And my family is made up of everything. I mean, we have white people in it. We have Asian people in it. We have uh, African-Americans, of course, and, you know, uh, Filipinos. Uh, I'll be on and on, you know. And uh, I say this to people as well, too, you know. The way to know that you are a racist or not is just ask yourself this simple question. If my mother, father, sister, brother, loved one fell in love with someone outside of what you call my race, but they loved them and they were being loved back and they were respectful to each other, would you object to them being married. And if the answer for whatever reason is no, 
you may not be the kind of racist that's going to go out and hang somebody for not being the color you are or the gender you are, but you definitely have a problem. And you need to come to yourself and address that problem because it's the content and the character of a person that makes a human being, not the shade of their skin or their religion. Hey Amen. Thank you for that, Oliver. You know, um, before we uh, started, we talked off air, but I want to uh, make everyone aware and not be confused about, you know, Ollie E. Brown and Oliver C. Brown. So Ollie E. Brown, who's been on the show, also a drummer slash percussionist and has done so many great sessions throughout the years. Um, but I think you have some funny stories related to that uh, confusion too, right? Yes, indeed. I mean, I love Ollie. I mean, you know, he was wonderful. Uh, he was, uh, he and Ray Parker were very, very tight partners of a fantastic guitar player and uh, producer. And, and Ollie produced some nice stuff too. But Ollie, you know, was uh, the, the way the story went to me, as I heard from uh, um, uh, Bobby Keys, who I worked a lot with too, from the saxophone player from the Rolling Stones, was. Uh, <clears throat> Ali uh, played with Billy Preston, and I played with Billy Preston. And Ali played with Jermaine Jackson, and I played with Jermaine Jackson. And Ali and I used to bump heads in the studio all the time. And I was always, because I only played percussion, you know, congas, bongos, timbales, bells, all those things. Ali actually is a phenomenal drummer, you know, and so good that he was called and booked on the same dates I was on to play drums. Okay, and so <clears throat> Ali, um, Ali and I used to get our checks actually confused at the union. We would go to the union, and uh, Ali would say, um, uh, "Oh, this one's yours." Oh, and I said, "No, Ali, well, this one here I have in the stack is yours." Which they one's bigger? Sometimes our checks are uh, Well, they were both uh, fairly well. You know, back in those days, we were both blessed to be working for double scale on anything we did. Because both of us were working with, you know, Ben Barrett, too, who was like the major contractor in this town. You know, he would book us on dates together. You know, so I would run into Ollie that way, too. But what happened was the Rolling Stones wanted to take out Billy Preston to play with him. And um, Billy told the Rolling Stones, well, you know, I got to keep my band working. So uh, they said, OK, well, we'll just put Ollie on uh, percussion because obviously the Stones were not going to get rid of it drum <laughs> you know that wasn't gonna happen and so anyway <clears throat> so Ali um uh, went out with the stones and he actually played the bongos and the stuff with sticks you know but once you play with the stones you play with the stones you know what I'm saying and so now he's me every time you would see percussion on anything they would say well that's Ali uh but 99 percent of that time it was me on percussion and 99 and 100% of the time, if it was drums, it's out because I can't play drums. <laughs> and that's how that happened. It was amazing, though. Wow. We used to talk about that all the time. <laughs> and you're both in California, you know, mm -hmm. now, you know. So, and yeah. of course, Ali always remind me that he was taller and better looking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> of course. <laughs> you know, so. Um. Yeah. So did that, uh, is that part of the reason why you've emphasized the middle initial also? Oh, yes. And that's how I had to change my name. My, they used to call me Ollie too. So now I prefer, you know, to be called Oliver C. Brown 
because they that was still was pretty close to Ollie E. Brown. So no matter what, we were still running into some uh, mix-up there from time to time. So now people know me as Oliver C. Brown, you know. They right. have, but the C stands for, it's actually Charles, but to the business people, it stands for cash. There you go. <laughs> All right. Well, now that you've both, I've both, both Ollie's have been on Truth and Rhythm, so hopefully there'll never be a confusion again. There's much more to this great Truth and Rhythm interview. Just continue on to the next part of the episode. Also, be sure to subscribe to this channel. If you've already done so, please share it with friends. And become a member by joining Truth and Rhythm on Patreon or consider donating at funkinstuff.net. Thank you very much.